From the Las Vegas Review-Journal studio, welcome to Season 2 of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, presented by Pro Group Management. Additional sponsorship provided by El Cortez and the Golden Steer. A heads up before we get started. Mobbed Up contains explicit content, such as obscene language and depictions of violence, including murder. Please be advised that this podcast might not be suitable for all audiences. It's a moment of jubilation for Wayne Newton as he appears before the Nevada Gaming Commission in Carson City on September 6, 1980. The Midnight Idol has just been approved as the new co-owner of the Aladdin Hotel. Newton had drawn applause in the packed hearing room when he said he wanted to make the Aladdin a, quote, shining star instead of a black cloud. And Gaming Commission Chairman Harry Reid told his colleagues, I don't see anything that we do today that's going to tarnish the image of gaming in Nevada. The commission had kicked out the Aladdin's previous owners after some executives were convicted in federal court of allowing the Detroit mob hidden management over the casino. But as Newton left the room with his longtime lawyer, Frank Farenkoff, the smiles on their faces were quickly erased. They were confronted by NBC star investigative reporter Brian Ross and his producer, Ira Silverman. Mr. Newton, Mr. Newton. News reports at the time described the approach as an ambush. Farenkoff remembers it well. We were walking out of the commission room, walking down the hallway to go out to my car, and Brian Ross and Iris Silverman showed up, sticking a microphone in Wayne's face, saying, how about Penosi making these allegations that he was a front for the mob and the mob money? I mean, just yelling and screaming at him. Guido Penosi was a well-known reputed mafia figure who had made death threats against Newton and his daughter go away earlier in the year. Farenkoff says Newton was getting angrier and angrier as Ross stuck a microphone in his face and peppered him with questions under the lights of the camera about calls he made to Penosi. Farenkoff thought Ross was trying to provoke Newton into doing something dramatic for the camera, even striking the reporter. And I kept saying, Wayne, keep walking, keep walking. You know, I remember Wayne was a black belt and I was afraid he was going to turn around and whack him. And they followed us all the way out to my car. And I, you know, I got Wayne in the car and I said, don't do anything, don't say anything, get in the damn car. I'm Jeff Gehrman, an investigative reporter with the Las Vegas Review Journal. In partnership with the Mob Museum, I'm your guide for season two of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, a true story about money. And so it was their piggy bank. They had the ability to get loans for whoever they wanted to get loans for. It just hit us like a tidal wave. Crime. You're in with every gangster and hoodlum in the United States. I don't go for that, Mr. Kennedy. Like I don't that? go for that kind of action. I emptied that revolver in his head, then he still was alive. And the battle to control the strip. I was on television accused of fronting for the mob. We were very angry and very upset, and we knew we had been double-crossed. I was really worried about the state of Nevada because uh, it, it was on trial also. I've covered organized crime from the streets to the boardrooms of the Strip for more than 40 years. In season two, I'll take you on a fascinating journey as the FBI and state of Nevada take on the mob families. Federal judges battle prosecutors and two of the biggest names in entertainment fight for the right to replace the mob on the strip. 
One thing that made Wayne Newton's purchase of the Aladdin Hotel an intriguing story in 1980 was that he had prevailed in a months-long bidding war with NBC's Tonight Show host, Johnny Carson. The late-night television king was not happy. He publicly expressed displeasure that his deal had fallen through. Then, he started ridiculing Newton during his monologues, and he stopped performing stand-up comedy on the strip. He sold his Las Vegas television station, and he left town. Frank Farenkopf says he found it odd that Brian Ross and Ira Silverman met with Carson in Beverly Hills the day after they confronted Newton outside the Gaming Commission hearing. At the time, NBC was struggling, but Carson's Tonight Show was a financial windfall for the network. And the question was, well, wait a minute, why did these two guys, after hitting Wayne, end up in Johnny Carson's home? Was Johnny promoting this and got, got NBC to do this? Ten days later, after the network aired its story on Newton, it became clear. October 1980 is a day that still haunts Wayne Newton. That's when NBC ran its special investigative report on the Las Vegas superstar's alleged mob connections. It came as the Midnight Idol's career was rocking. He was not only a casino owner, but also the highest paid entertainer and biggest draw on the strip. Fallout from that broadcast would be big news in Las Vegas for years. Ross, now chief investigative correspondent for the Law and Crime Network, explains what prompted the Newton report. We got a tip early on that there was a, a federal grand jury investigation in New Haven, Connecticut, into some organized crime figures with the uh, New York Gambino family. And one of them was a man considered, I guess, a capo in the Gambino family who was running gambling and other rackets out of uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut. And they had a wiretap on a payphone that he was regularly using to conduct business. And at one point, we were told, as they were listening on the wire, a call came in to uh, Frank Piccolo from Wayne Newton which then uh, caused a lot of concern by uh, law enforcement, the FBI, and they began to wonder what that was all about. Piccolo was related to underworld figure Guido Pinossi, who had a casual relationship with Newton since his early days as a singer. The NBC report says a federal grand jury in Connecticut is investigating the role of Pinossi and the mob in Newton's deal for the Aladdin. Ross quotes investigators saying that before Newton announced he would buy the Aladdin, he called Pinossi for help with a problem. The problem was important enough for Pinossi to take it up with the leaders of the Gambino family in New York, Ross says. Ross then reports that one of those leaders, Pinossi's cousin Frank Piccolo, told associates, quote, he had taken care of Newton's problem and had become a hidden partner in the Aladdin deal. Federal authorities told Ross that Newton was not telling the entire truth about his relationship with Pinossi and was to be one of the first witnesses before the Connecticut grand jury. Newton says that network report, which came just days after he had opened the Aladdin under his ownership, was the beginning of what seemed like a never-ending nightmare for him. It was emotional. I was on television accused of affronting for the mob. My mother started to cry got up and left the room. I still tear up to this day because I realize how that must have hurt her. Now, it didn't hurt me personally as much at the time because I knew it was a lie. I didn't know anything about the mafia. Frank Farenkopf saw how Newton was hurting. It was at the top of his, his career. I think he saw then that uh, 
I, I would love to own a piece of one of these places <laughs> where I could play myself and as I go forward. And then boom, this thing hits. And I know his mom and dad were devastated. He was humiliated, he was embarrassed. And yeah, it, he, he took it very, very hard. Newton says at first he wasn't sure how his fans would react to the story, but he soon got a pleasant surprise. Well, the fact is that the people who came to see me didn't seem to believe it, which was wonderful. So from the standpoint of being on stage, I realized that it hadn't affected that end of my life at all. Personally, it affected me a lot, thinking about the fact that my parents would have to go through that nonsense. My rest of my family would have to discuss that with other people. But the truth of the matter in retrospect, I think that maybe if that element existed in Las Vegas, and it obviously did according to everybody, right? Instead of trying to reel me in as a performer, I believe that they did just the opposite. I believe that they said to some of their own, leave the kid alone. The NBC report did not explain what exactly prompted Newton to turn to Pinossi, a man the singer had known casually since he performed at the Copacabana nightclub in New York years earlier. Newton went to Pinossi with a problem, but it did not appear to be related to the Aladdin. Months earlier, he had received threats to harm his young daughter. Newton, who maintains he was unaware of Pinossi's mafia connections, called Pinossi to help him deal with the threats. Pinossi referred him to Piccolo, and the threat stopped. When Newton testified before Nevada gaming regulators less than two weeks before NBC's broadcast, they did not question him publicly about the threats. It didn't take long for a furious Newton to react to the NBC story. He held a hastily prepared news conference at the Aladdin Hotel in Las Vegas the next day. Newton appeared before a mostly sympathetic media crowd and vowed to take on powerful NBC in what he called a, quote, fight that could last the rest of my life. He announced that he had hired one of the most relentless litigators in Las Vegas, Morton Ghislaine, to file a libel lawsuit on his behalf against NBC and the news team that broke the story. Newton called the story, quote, the most blatant example of national TV and media abuse I have ever witnessed. Barenkoff says Newton was determined to clear his name. He was mad. He was mad. He wanted to get even. He, you know, his view was, I'm not going to settle for peanuts that they might offer. They can't do this to people. It is wrong to do this to people. And he felt it was doing it not only for himself, but for anyone who's falsely accused of something. Several months later, in April 1981, the tireless Ghislaine filed suit on Newton's behalf against NBC, Brian Ross, producer Ira Silverman, and others. Ghislaine did not name Johnny Carson as a defendant, but he accused the late-night television host of conspiring with NBC to damage Newton's reputation. More on that later. Newton ended up testifying before the federal grand jury in Connecticut investigating Pinossi and Piccolo. The grand jury indicted the two reputed mobsters in June 1981 on charges of conspiring to extort money from Newton, fellow entertainer Lola Falana, and their business manager. Newton maintained he was not extorted, but the indictment alleged the plot was the result of Newton's contact with Pinossi and Piccolo to resolve the death threats against the singer's daughter. 
Piccolo was murdered gangland style before he could be tried on the charges, and Penosi was ultimately acquitted. This was not a happy time for Newton. I remember breaking a story about another death threat he received. Sources told me a contract allegedly had been ordered on Newton's life because of his involvement as a witness in the Connecticut federal investigation. An FBI informant there had obtained information about the planned hit, and sketchy details were relayed to the local FBI and the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. Authorities here were somewhat skeptical of the information, but still took it seriously. Coming up, you'll hear Newton's take on having his life threatened and how a legendary, high-profile celebrity who had a lot more knowledge about the mob than Newton came to his rescue. We'll be back after a break. To say Wayne Newton's life was complicated in October 1981 would be an understatement. He was running the Aladdin Hotel, performing on the strip before his loyal fans, suing NBC to regain his stellar reputation, and fending off death threats. Newton was well prepared to protect himself and his family in those days without the help of authorities. He employed a half dozen bodyguards trained in martial arts, firearms, and explosives. Here's how Newton got the word that his life was in danger. I was in Los Angeles, and I get a call from the sheriff in Vegas, and he said, uh, Wayne, when are you going to be home? And I said, uh, I'm coming back today because I work tonight. And uh, he said, well, what time are you getting back? And I told him, and he said, we'll meet you at the airport. And I said, what's the problem? He said, nothing I want to talk about on the phone. So I get back to Las Vegas and step off the plane, and the sheriff is there with an FBI agent. They informed me that there was a hit list out with five people on it, and my name was the last on the list. And four of the people had been killed already. And I said, why me? And he said, because of this whole NBC thing. You're being subpoenaed to a grand jury to talk about anybody that you know in the mob or purportedly in the mob. So your name's on this list. And he handed me a bulletproof vest and he said, call us if anything happens. <laughs> hold it, hold it. What, what do you mean call me if anything happens? He said, well, there's nothing we can do until they move against you. And I said, what about my family? And he said, well, don't go home, stay in the hotel. So Newton says he stayed in the hotel for six weeks and kept getting calls from people wanting to help him, including one of the greatest entertainers of all time, a man who understood what it was like to be linked to the mob. I've been so beat down. I've been slapped some and kicked around. So Frank Sinatra called me and he said, kid, what's, what's all this crap I'm hearing about? I said, I don't know, Mr. Sinatra. I don't. I said, this is what happened. You know about my acquisition of the Aladdin and what that turned into on national news. And I said, I don't know anything about those people. And he said, I'll get back to you. And five days later, the FBI calls me and said, your name has been taken off the list. But the threats weren't the only thing on Newton's mind during his litigation with NBC. Johnny Carson held a place there too. Michael Green, a University of Nevada Las Vegas history professor, says it's not surprising that Newton and Carson clashed over the Aladdin Hotel. They're both sort of kings of the strip. 
and now they want to buy a casino. And Carson joked about Newton. Uh, he joked about a lot of people. The question in this case is whether he went too far and whether it affected the judgment of NBC as a television network. Newton today still suspects Carson had something to do with the NBC story. Once we sued NBC and we were in depositions and all of that for months, it became quite apparent to my legal team and to myself. At that point, I think it came out in the depositions that Carson's show represented 30% of NBC's overall income. And I had no idea that he was that important to the network. Farenkopf recalls taking Carson's deposition during the epic litigation and pressing him about the meeting with Brian Ross and Ira Silverman. First, he said, I don't know who Brian Ross is. I never heard of him. He couldn't remember anything. For three hours, I tried to pound him. And he, oh, I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't remember. Despite that, Carson ultimately avoided becoming a defendant in the lawsuit. Newton listened to the advice of his lawyer, Morton Ghislaine. Mort said to me, I think that the true culprit in all of this is NBC because for them to react to making up this story, then running it on and on and on, it had to go way past Johnny Carson. So I would rather have the suit against the company than against Johnny Carson, because I don't want it to be entertainer against entertainer. And so that was his rationale. And of course, I respected him, and I believe he was probably right. NBC was represented in the case by nationally known First Amendment lawyer Floyd Abrams. In his book, Speaking Freely, Abrams describes the odd feeling he got coming to Las Vegas to defend NBC in court. He remembers walking through McCarran International Airport and seeing giant advertisements of Newton promoting his strip show. Abrams says, quote, Newton was the embodiment of Las Vegas, its ambassador to the world. In those days, Newton frequently participated in community fundraising events and was active in the Republican Party. Nobody had a bad thing to say about Mr. Las Vegas. Ross says the network knew it was in for a bitter legal battle. Ferenkoff later told us you've got a very angry uh, star on your hands, so... Uh... You know, he's a, he's a man who had some means, obviously, and uh, the lawsuit was taken, you know, with seriousness, and we felt confident in what we had reported. The allegation was that we said that Wayne Newton was somehow part of the mafia, which is not what we reported at all. In fact, he was probably uh, in line to become a victim of the mafia, the way it laid out. And someone like Wayne Newton or anybody who decided to sue, if they have the wherewithal, it can drag out the process for years, and this one did. Ross acknowledges that he and Silverman had met with Carson, the late-night star, while reporting out the story, and that Carson had clout at the network. But the duo was not trying to dig up dirt on Newton. I think it's true he was very important to NBC, which at the time I think was struggling. He was the one sort of bright spot on the whole NBC uh, schedule. When we went to meet Carson for about 45 minutes at his home in uh, Los Angeles, just to ask him what he knew about it, he didn't know much. And that's where it ends. Where it got nutty, I thought, was that in theory, I think they advanced initially was that this was essentially a hit job by NBC, ordered by NBC to help Carson. 
and that we simply carried out you know, this attack on him, which was just simply not true. Newton's high-profile case against NBC didn't go to trial until October 1986. Two months later, the Las Vegas jury found that the network had libeled Newton, and it awarded him $19.3 million in damages. Newton, with his emotional testimony under oath, was his own star witness. The verdict turned into a moment of pain for NBC and its intrepid reporter. Well, we were, we were crushed. We went into it thinking, well, this is going to be tough because this is Wayne Newton's uh, hometown. He's beloved in uh, Las Vegas. He was then, still is, as far as I know. He's a person who uh, you know appeared at any local fundraising. He was one at that time, one of the few big-name stars who actually lived full-time in Las Vegas. There's a Wayne Newton Day in Las Vegas. There's a Wayne Newton Boulevard as you leave the airport. So he was a, a hometown hero and idol, and we knew that would be tough, and we were prepared for a, a bad outcome, and that's what we got. We had uh, FBI agents involved in the investigation who had left the FBI, uh, who, you know, who testified on our behalf, and uh, we felt the facts were pretty strong. Ross recalls that his effort to get an interview with Guido Pinosi in Beverly Hills became a moment of laughter during the trial. Pinosi told him, fuck you. The cameraman was testifying about the encounter, you know, what happened. And uh, the, he was asked, what did, did Mr. Pinosi say to Mr. Ross? And the, um, and the cameraman, uh, Lee Wilson, uh, said, uh, oh, kind of under his breath, fuck you. And the judge said, uh, what did he say? And uh, Lee said, fuck you, your honor. It was high drama in the courtroom there. At one point uh, when uh, Mr. Newton was on the stand, he was asked whether he had said anything uh, that, to me that wasn't true. My lawyer, Floyd Abrams, asked him that. And his response was, I didn't know I was under oath to Mr. Wimp over there, referring to me. So, you know, there were, there were these kind of uh, petty, childish kind of behaviors in his part. He often would come in and kind of put his hand, palm of his hand, up the side of his face facing me and then just leave one middle finger there so I could see that. And, you know, it was, uh, yeah, it was uh, you know, well, listen, he, he felt aggrieved, you know, he felt that we had done him wrong and uh, he was angry and, you know, he cried on the stand uh, when he testified. It seemed to practice to us, but probably not to the jury. Abrams recalls in his 2005 book that the judge who presided over the trial was stunned by the $19.3 million verdict. The jury also found that members of the NBC News team had harbored ill will against Newton and intended to harm his reputation. But Abrams later persuaded the judge to reduce the jury award to $5.2 million. The judge did not believe that Newton's reputation had been damaged by the NBC report. The Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in San Francisco then overturned the $5.2 million award. The court found that the NBC report suggesting links between Newton and the mob figures had not been shown to be recklessly false, and that there was almost no evidence of actual malice. Still ahead, Wayne Newton loses his entire verdict against NBC, but did he still come out a winner? Mobbed up, the Fight for Las Vegas Season 2 continues after a word from our sponsors. The Ninth Circuit's decision reducing the remaining portion of Newton's judgment against NBC came as welcome news to investigative reporter Brian Ross. I felt terrific because uh, uh, I had felt pretty poorly after the jury verdict came back because at the time it was, I think, the largest uh, verdict against any uh, 
news organization in America. We learned only later that uh, the jury, some of the jury wanted to make it uh, $40 million. But in the end, after a decade-long legal fight, Ross says the story held up. But he did have a relationship of some kind with uh, Frank Piccolo and Guido Pinosi. He knew them back from his days, apparently, when he performed at the Copa in uh, New York. Are there mobsters like to cozy up to entertainers? Yes, they do. And uh, when you reach out to someone like Frank Piccolo, you know, he, he does you a favor. Well, then what's next? Ross says he hopes Newton is doing well today. He's been an American icon for uh, decades now and, you know, has performed to the joy of millions of people. Our story was not meant to necessarily to, we, we didn't mean at all to say he was in the mafia. We meant to say that there were these connections. And I think in the end, he was uh, somebody that they were trying to take advantage of. And others did take advantage of him. It's, it's, uh, I, I feel for him. But Newton still sees himself as coming out a winner in all of this. His comfort is in the original jury verdict against NBC, the everyday Las Vegans who, after hearing all of the evidence, sided with him. When the jury came in finding me innocent of all charges, of course I felt like that was the vindication I was looking for. And then, of course, when they took it to the Ninth Circuit, of course, we all know that's the most liberal of courts in the country. It was interesting to me that not only did they say, okay, NBC doesn't have to pay what the jury awarded me, and this is why. Yes, they knew what they said was a lie. Yes, Johnny Carson was involved. Yes, it was devastating. But the reason we are overturning this jury verdict is because Wayne Newton can't prove that he lost any money as a result of this. And I thought, maybe our court system needs some work. <laughs> Newton says he shelled out about $4 million fighting NBC in court. But this fight was not about money, according to Ferenkoff, his former lawyer. I remember him telling me, they cleared my name. When you read what that jury found and you read the, the briefs and so forth, they cleared Wayne's name. He hadn't been involved in anything illegal. He hadn't given anyone secret ownership. Today, Newton doesn't perform on the strip as much as he used to, but he's still revered by his fans. And when he looks back at that stormy period in his life, he finds contentment. Well, I think that obviously I wish none of that had happened in terms of and for my family and friends. The silver lining behind that, if you will, is that the people who support me and still come and see me to this day didn't believe a word of it. Coming up in season two of Mobbed Up, the fight for Las Vegas, we turn back to the government's war on organized crime. We look at how the feds drove Harry Claiborne, the colorful judge they felt was corrupt and blocking that mission from the federal bench, and how they coaxed a fugitive brothel baron to return to Nevada to accuse the judge of taking bribes. You'll hear from Claiborne himself when he testified before the U.S. Senate during his impeachment trial in 1986. I want to be honest with every member of this body. I would much rather right today be almost any place than here. You'll also hear from David Chesnoff, a rising legal star who was part of Claiborne's defense team. He told the senators 
that he was being pursued by the government like a wounded caribou being chased by a pack of wolves. And I'll, I'll never forget it. This has been Part 6, Season 2 of Mobbed Up, a production for the Las Vegas Review-Journal in partnership with the Mob Museum. If you are enjoying it, please subscribe to the series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening right now. Help us out by telling your friends and by leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This series is reported by me, Jeff Gehrman, field and studio recording by Larry Meir, and audio engineering by Greg Conway. Wayne Newton was interviewed by Review Journal columnist John Katsalamidis. We would like to thank our Mobbed Up Season 2 presenting sponsor, Pro Group Management. Additional sponsorship provided by The Golden Steer and El Cortez.